Well, we've been hearing over the last few weeks how the good news of Jesus has been going out to the nations. Lots of Gentile people are becoming Christians, but it's creating a little bit of a challenge for some strict Jewish believers. Tonight we're going to see how some tensions come to the surface. So let's listen as Andre just reminded us to the powerful, precious word of God together. We're reading from Acts chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. 
For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, let me add my welcome uh, to Sam's. It's great that you're with us, especially if you're new or visiting. We've been working through the book of Acts over this term and we reach this a watershed moment, really, in the life of the early church where uh, God's message is under threat. So let me pray for us as we come to this section that we might understand clearly uh, the implications for ourselves today. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and that it is clear and that it judges even the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And we pray that you'd be at work in us tonight by your Holy Spirit uh, convicting us afresh about your gospel of grace. It would be clear not to add to it or to confuse it with other things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, laws, laws, laws. Have you ever been frustrated by laws which were clearly past their use-by date or overwhelmed with a number of regulations which just didn't seem to affect anybody's behaviour anyway? You know, legalism has been a constant struggle for humanity down through history, with people wanting to legislate for all kinds of things. And there are still many modern examples of pedantic or clearly out-of-date laws that are still current, still on the books, um, even though they're from a bygone era, particularly in the United States. For example... In Missouri, you cannot, under any circumstances, drive with an uncaged bear in your car. Now, I feel like many bears have not been told this uh, because they like to get into cars, but this is one of those laws still on the books. According to the North Carolina uh, Department of Public Safety, uh, the number of bingo sessions allowed in that region are only two per week, and each session cannot last longer than five hours. I mean, you've got to stop those bingo marathon people. Don't let them push on into the sixth hour. That would be terrible. In Hailthorpe, Maryland, a kiss lasting more than a second in public is an illegal act. I wonder how they police that. You know, maybe spies with stopwatches. Um, Illinois forbids you from giving your dog a lit cigar no matter how much he wants one. Uh, obviously, it was a problem at some point and they needed to bring in this law. It's hard to imagine why, though. And perhaps the ultimate recent example came in March um, of 2004 when the United States, both lower house and the Senate, passed what has become known as the Cheeseburger Bill, uh, which prohibits people from suing fast food companies if they get fat eating their food. So you've got to protect groups like Maccas, I guess. Um, we gravitate towards making rules, it seems. Uh, you know, we like setting boundaries for people. And as we come to Acts 15, we, we really do have a watershed moment as the gospel is under threat. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and the church in Syrian Antioch are confronted by some legalistic Judeans who have journeyed from Jerusalem up to them. And it just seems such a difficult moment for that to happen and the gospel's just been making great inroads, as we've seen the last two weeks in Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey, 
Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus and then into what is now modern-day Turkey, and many people are becoming believers. It's such a high point at this moment. And then suddenly there's this roadblock that's seemingly rolled into the way of this Gentile mission as the gospel comes under threat, as certain believers seek to add laws to the gospel that believers must follow. So the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. Why is salvation by grace alone? Why is salvation by grace alone? Two answers to that question tonight. First answer is this. Because the law is a burden which cannot save. The law is a burden which cannot save us. So notice again what is stated in verses 5 to 11. Here is Peter's defense that we heard earlier. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. It's a stirring defence from Peter. But let me take you back a couple of verses to begin the start of the chapter in verse 1. Recap how we got to this point. There's this group of Christians, as I mentioned, from Jerusalem. And remember, Jerusalem is the headquarters still. That's where the apostles are. Peter and John are still there. The elders that are leading the church, they're setting the tone for that day still. But people have left from their church and travelled up to Syrian Antioch and they're trying to impose the Old Testament law on the new Gentile believers. These are Christians. These are people that have come to place their faith in Jesus, but they've come from a Jewish background and they're trying to hang on to their Old Testament laws and practices and have Jesus as well. And they're wanting to impose that on the Gentiles and say, yes, you can trust in Jesus, but you have to obey these Old Testament rules as well or you cannot be saved. You notice it's a salvation issue to them. Now, in verse 2, of course, Paul and Barnabas are really upset about this. They've been preaching a gospel of grace. These people have come in and disturbed them, and so there's this big sharp dispute and debate we read about, understandably. And clearly it wasn't resolved because the church decides that they'll send Paul and Barnabas back down to Jerusalem to sort this out once and for all. And so they journey back down, several days down to Jerusalem, because it's the central authority. They want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Are these people actually promoting what the apostles are teaching them or are they rogue? This needs to be clear because the gospel is at stake here. This is a crucial church meeting that's going to take place. And all of this is reinforced in verse 5. Uh, notice that they journey down in verse 3. They get a really warm reception in verse 4. Um, but then the whole debate is rekindled immediately as the meeting starts in verse 5 because you get a few from this Pharisee party, we're told, that stand up and say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and keep 
the law of Moses. Now notice the debate is even broadened here. In verse 1, they were just wanting them to follow the rite of circumcision, but now it's the whole law. And so here you have fellow believers, people that are claiming to follow Jesus, contending for different ways of salvation. It's a massive problem. And so there's a stir. This needs to be resolved. The elders and apostles, notice, seems they retire to the side and they have a discussion about all this to decide this issue in verse 6. Then Peter stands up and makes the statement that we just read out before. And remember, Peter's view carries a lot of weight. He's the leading apostle. Remember, he was part of the inner circle of the disciples for Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He's now a leader in preaching the gospel. And so his views carry a lot of weight. But more than that, of course, he was the first one to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Remember back in Acts 10, we saw a few weeks ago that it was him that went to Cornelius's house. Admittedly, he was kind of dragged screaming there. Remember, God had had to send him a dream or a vision that he could overcome all his scruples as a Jew who would not eat with Gentiles, would not even enter their house because they didn't deal with food in a kosher manner according to the Old Testament laws. So it created this huge separation, Jew from Gentile. But God had overcome that. Peter had gone into Cornelius's house. He had preached the gospel and a whole bunch of people there that Cornelius had gathered had all become believers. And so Peter's recounting that story in verses 7 to 9, notice. He says, well, it was God, verse 7, who took me and overcame these barriers to preach the gospel. It was God, verse 8, who gave them the Holy Spirit and made it clear that there was no discrimination between the two groups. They received the Spirit without having to do any of these laws. And then verse 9, it was God who was purifying them by faith alone, not by works of the law. No one can be made pure because no one can perfectly fulfill them. And so that leads to Peter's punchline in verses 10 and 11. He's saying, well, given the fact that God has done all of those things and shown no distinction between the two groups, then these people who have come and disturbed us, they're often referred to as the Judaizers, they're trying to make the Jewish Old Testament laws be imposed on the Gentiles, well, they've got it all wrong. They're they're putting a yoke on these young believers' shoulders, which we have never been able to fulfill as Israelites. No one can fulfill the law perfectly. It is put there to remind us of our sin and our need for a saviour. Rather, if he was quoting Matthew 11, he'd be, and this seems to be in the background as he reflects on this yoke of heavy burden, Jesus said in Matthew 11, my burden is light, my yoke is easy because it's all about grace and trusting in Christ's finished work. And we use that word grace so much. We've grown up in a time and a place where the gospel of grace is a phrase that we hear all the time. We have to be really clear on the definition of these things. Grace is referring to God's unmerited favour, or his undeserved kindness that's been shown to us in the giving of his Son, the Lord Jesus. That we weren't deserving of being saved, that we were rebels against God because of our sin, but God sent his Son, Jesus, anyway to deliver us from our sin, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve, so that God can pardon rebels deserving of his wrath. God acts to save us. He shows us grace. It's a gift. Now let me illustrate that to show how important it is to grasp this truth. 
There's a story of an attempted assassination attempt on the uh, first Queen Elizabeth of England. This is going back to the 1500s. There were actually several assassination attempts on her life. But in this one, it was a woman who sought to kill her. Um, She dressed as a male servant. She hid herself in the Queen's uh, bedroom, in her wardrobe, amongst all her gowns, and she was going to jump out at the appropriate moment in her mind uh, with her weapon of choice, a knife, and attack the Queen. But she failed to consider one thing, uh, that the Queen's attendants would be very careful to search the room, such was the uh, furor in that day around the throne, and they would not allow Her Majesty uh, to retire until the room had been thoroughly um, scoped. And so they found her amongst the gowns. They brought her out after confiscating her weapon and then realising that, humanly speaking, things were hopeless. She was lost. She would be executed because of this attempt. She threw herself on the ground and begged and pleaded for her life before the Queen. She asked for compassion. She asked that the Queen show her grace. Queen Elizabeth apparently looked at her coldly and said, If I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? The woman looked up at her and said, Grace that has conditions, grace that is fettered by precautions is not grace at all. Seems an unlikely moment to argue theology, doesn't it? Could have gone wrong. But the queen caught her idea in a moment and said, You are right. I pardon you of my grace. And she was let go freely Undeservedly, she went free, and we're just like her. You see, we deserve to be punished because of our sin, and yet we go free. There are no strings attached. There's no promise of our performance in the future. There's no works that we add to Jesus' perfect work on the cross. Simply freedom. It's a gift. And like Peter, who defended the gospel, at this really important council in Jerusalem, at this crucial moment in the mission to the Gentiles, we too are called to defend the gospel of grace. The gospel doesn't fit in around the law of the Old Testament, let alone any man-made rules that we might come up with today. Rather, the gospel fulfills the Old Testament law because we're placing our trust in the one who perfectly obeyed it. Jesus Christ, the only one who could come and perfectly live out love for God with all his heart and mind and soul and a love of neighbour as himself. But legalism, which compromises the gospel, still exists today, not just in the first century. And it comes in many forms today. It can compromise the message For example, I'm sure you know, there are some churches in the world today that teach, for example, that you can only be saved if you read the Bible by reading the King James Version of the Bible that sort of in their mind arrived from heaven in 1611 and is better even than the Hebrew and Greek scriptures in which the Bible is originally written, which all translations are based on. Other churches will say at times that you cannot be saved unless you have the one true baptism that is only offered in their church. And so unless you're baptised under their rules, their way, then you cannot be sure of your salvation. 
Or other churches will say at times that you cannot be sure that you're a Christian unless you've spoken in tongues. And if you have not spoken in tongues and you have no proof, you should have no assurance and they need to pray for you until you display that because otherwise you're not a believer. Or you must follow the set of rules or traditions that our church has in order to be sure of your salvation. So you need to confess your sin to a certain priest or you need to say certain prayers. There's a whole list of things you need to do. All of these things are wrong. All such modern legalisms are false doctrines which undermine the gospel of grace. Just as circumcision and all the Old Testament laws became recurring legalisms that plagued the early church. Be on the alert against additions to the gospel. Anything that is told to you that is gospel plus something is really a subtraction. It's an undermining of God's pure message, the gift of grace. Which brings me to a second answer to this question. Why is salvation by grace alone? Well, not only because the law cannot save, but also because grace leaves no room for syncretism. Grace leaves no room for syncretism. I'll explain that word a bit later if it's unclear. Now, notice again, firstly, what is stated in verses 19 to 21. This is Jesus' brother, James, who was the leading elder in Jerusalem, and he speaks at the end of this sort of debate to sum up their position and set the way forward. James speaks and says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So we might ask, well, what happened in the aftermath of Peter's stirring defence of the gospel of grace? Well, in verse 12, Peter and Barnabas, uh, rather Paul and Barnabas, get a chance to talk about their first missionary journey. And so they get up and talk about all the signs and wonders that God has done through them as the gospel has been preached. And again, it points to the fact that God shows no discrimination between Gentile and Jew, just as he did signs and wonders at Pentecost and following that, he also did them amongst the Gentiles on their missionary journey. But we need to understand, as I mentioned before, that um, they don't carry any weight in Jerusalem. They carry a lot of weight in Antioch, but in Jerusalem it's Peter and John and especially James, the brother of Jesus too, as the leading elder. And so his voice is the final voice in this meeting and he seeks to fully convince the assembly of the position they've reached. And he begins by throwing his weight behind Peter's statement in verse 14. But notice he does so in verses 15 to 18 by bringing in the Old Testament, which the Jews look to all the time. And so he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. And he says that in this passage, it confirms God's intention always to save the Gentiles by stating that Israel's mission is to open the knowledge of God to the Gentiles. Now, as we read that passage, it seems like, you know, there's a promised rebuilding of the rule of the house of David. And we think maybe that's because, you know, it's envisaging a time in the future where in a military sense, they'll take control of areas of the Gentiles. But no, 
Peter says, uh, James rather says, it's now taking place through the church's mission to the Gentiles as the gospel is preached. Because this is occurring as Gentiles willingly give their allegiance to David's greatest son, Jesus. And therefore, this Gentile mission is the work of God. This was made known in advance in the Old Testament, in Amos, in Isaiah and other places. It's now being fulfilled as the good news goes out to the ends of the earth. Now, all of that's helpful as um, James offers additional arguments from Scripture, which backs out what Peter has said and Paul and Barnabas have been arguing for. But what about this conclusion in verses 19 to 21? Did it strike you as a bit of a shock? What is happening here? You know, is he suddenly turning this clear defense of the gospel of grace on its head? Because he seems to be adding in four rules again. Is he suddenly putting the law back in and returning us to the legalism that they've been fighting against in this whole meeting? Well, the short answer is no. Notice firstly in verse 19 that his concern is to not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So he's not wanting to impose anything. He's repeating Peter's protest against placing an intolerable yoke on these converts' necks. But then what are we to make of these four requirements that they want to write to the church in Antioch and the churches in Turkey about? What is going on here? What they are about is the spiritual threat of continued idolatry for Gentiles. We have to understand that in every Gentile city and town in this era in the first century, there would be a pagan temple and there would be Offerings made to idols, often meat, but other things as well. Sadly, also, prostitution caught up with the temple cult would be present as well. It was all part of the worship of these pagan idols. And what they're wanting to see ensured is that there is a clean break from Gentile believers from their past actions, their past religious beliefs so that as they turn to Jesus, they are serving him only. Now, why would he need to say such a thing? Well, in that society, it was just part of the social fabric. So many of the business deals were done over meals at the temple. So much of the social oiling, if you like, of relationships and improving a person's status happened through this meeting place that was pagan worship. And so it would be easy for these new believers to hang on to some of those practices, to think somehow that's okay and I can do some of these things still and have Jesus. But there's a clear delineation here between those that follow Christ and these past habits of Gentile believers. God will not tolerate rivals, so Gentiles need to make a clear decision. And so it's not about selecting a few Old Testament laws randomly um, from Leviticus 17 and 18, as some have claimed at times in the past, but it's about a small group of things that all apply to this particular situation that Gentiles faced in their world as they interacted with people in their cities and towns. And the reason that we know this was good news, that it didn't feel like laws being imposed, is because when this letter is sent and it's read out to the church, which we get later in the chapter, we finally get the response of the believers in Antioch in verse 31, and they're overjoyed. We're told that they're glad. They understand clearly that the gospel of grace has been defended. 
that what these people came up to Jerusalem saying to them was wrong, but that idols must go. Very clear for them. The gospel protected. But how does all that apply to us today? We don't live in first century pagan Turkey or Syria. We don't face those kind of idolatrous practices all around us all the time. But I believe this issue of syncretism is something that is spoken powerfully to. Syncretism is where people add various religious beliefs together. They might adopt a new belief, but they hold on to their old ones so that they have this mix and match of many gods and many beliefs. For example, a Hindu person today might make the mistake of just adding Jesus to the many other gods that he or she already supports or worships. Or somebody who worships ancestors or appeases spirits in an animistic culture uh, might seek to continue such superstitious practices while claiming to follow Jesus too. But a person who does these things has not made Jesus Lord of their life if that's happening. Such syncretism doesn't just happen in parts of Asia or Africa today. It happens right here in Australia too. Not because simply those other religious beliefs from around the world are present here, which they certainly are, but because we have many idols in our culture too. It's just they're more hidden. They're less outward. They're less obvious. They're often idols of the heart that express themselves in where we spend our time and our money. And so people can worship their job or their career. They can worship education in order to get further in that career. They can even worship their family. All these things can be good in their own way, but when they become the centre of our lives and push Jesus to the side, they've become an idol. And you'd have to say that the number one idol in our culture today, in a Western culture, is materialism. The great God is the love of money and possessions. And this is what is so terrible about the prosperity gospel because it's saying that a person can claim that they have Jesus as their Saviour and Lord and yet they can continue to worship their money. That somehow Jesus has no concern about that. Nothing could be further from the truth. One of the sharpest statements in the New Testament about you can only have one and not the other comes on this very topic. We looked at it last year. Matthew 6. Let's have a look. Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, there is no both and with following Jesus. You don't have Jesus and something else as well. There can't be another idol present for a Christian that they add on to their belief in Jesus. If that's you today, get rid of that idol from your life. Be focused on Jesus alone. That thing will be dragging you away so that you cease to be what you're called to be as a follower of Jesus. If you think you can add things, then you've not truly turned to Jesus as Lord of your life. Now we struggle. We struggle with idols in this world. But we also struggle with what I talked about in the first half of the passage, to let go of good works, 
to see that we can't contribute to our salvation. We so often want to think that we're worthy. We're brought up from day one to say there's no such thing as a free lunch. You have to do something to contribute. Surely you can earn your way to heaven, at least add to what Jesus is doing. The gospel just seems too simple to so many people. It's all been done by Christ, and the only thing that I can contribute is my sin? Yes, that's exactly how the gospel of grace works. It's humbling. It's hard to accept that we can't contribute to the final result. Let me illustrate how much that is baked into our worldview today. A leading manufacturing company in the United States developed a cake mix uh, a couple of decades ago now that required only water to be added. Uh, Tests were run, surveys were made, the cake mix proved to be superior to everything else that was on the market. It tasted good, it was easy to make, of course, in the way they had done it. It made moist, tender cake, and the company spent massive amounts of money on this advertising campaign as they launched their new product. But in the weeks that followed, very few people bought it, and the company was completely perplexed. And so they spent another truckload of money surveying people in America to find out why it didn't sell. Based on the results of the survey, the company reworked their formula and they re-released the cake mix. And the new cake mix required that you not only add water, but also an egg or two, so that you could feel like you were contributing and really making a cake. It sold like hotcakes. It's now the leading product in the country. You see, the first cake mix was just too simple to be believable. People wouldn't accept it. The same so often true of salvation by grace. Something about it that irks the human condition. And yet it's the most wonderful freeing gift that our salvation does not depend upon our performance. depends on the perfect work of the Lord Jesus. But despite the struggle of humanity to come to grips with God's gracious gift of Christ, Let us be those who hold out the gospel, that allow no compromise, no additions, no works of the law, no things that you need to do, that we might hold out purely the gospel of grace to a needy world so desperate to hear the good news. Further, may we not allow ourselves or anyone around us to stay devoted to idols than to think that they can have Christ on their terms. We must count the cost of following Jesus. It's not our way, it's his way. We have to realise the relationship with, by faith with him means that we are dead to a whole lot of practices that we may previously been part of. It means the end of a relationship with a lot of things because God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his glory that it may not be shared with some empty idol that has taken position in your heart. Jesus is going to have you on his terms or he won't have you in his family at all. That is the gospel of grace. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so clear to us. 
We thank you for the clear defence of the gospel of grace by the Apostle Peter, by James, by Paul and Barnabas, by many people down through the last 20 centuries that has seen that gospel come to us in clarity today. We thank you that we can be fully assured of our forgiveness, of our right standing with you, not because of anything that we've done or will ever do, but because of our perfect Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, we are great sinners, but we have a far greater Saviour. We thank you for him. We pray in his name. Amen.